This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Just a few years ago, you could guarantee that Everton would be a bit dull, but end up coming seventh and win the Everton Cup in some kind of stasis. Never good, never really bad, just existing. How they must dream of recapturing that pointlessness. Up for sale, manager sacked, in the relegation zone, loan moves hijacked, a lot to unpack. It could be worse. They could be Juventus. At least a great chance to all learn about amortisation. That's why we all got into football in the first place. Uh, We'll explain what's happened and why and what it all means. All that plus something niche from Paul Watson. More reaction to the all-new Barney Ronay. Your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nikki Bandini, welcome. Morning. Paul Watson, hello. Hello. Azaid says, buzzing over the return of Baz, almost like a new signing. Welcome back. All new Barry with feelings. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Max. I heard all new Barney yesterday, and I'm, I'm thinking it must be me that's bringing him down. When, when I'm not here, he soars. It's highly possible. Uh, joining us to talk Everton is Everton podcaster Marva Creel. Hey, Marva, how are you? I would say good, but I think we all know I'm lying. So thanks for having me. I'll say that. I know. It's a, a pleasure. I was going to say, you know, Everton podcaster, good, lots of material, bad. You're presumably an Everton fan, right? That's um, exactly so, it. <laughs> should we start with Frank Lampard then? Um, sacked after less than a year in charge at Goodison. Five points from 20 games above Southampton on goal difference. I mean, it felt inevitable, Marva, didn't it? It did. And um, I was at the West Ham game on on Saturday and just the mood. I mean, I've seen some bad moods along among uh, Everton fans, but that was, it was just resignation. No one even really particularly cared at that point. So the second goal in, it went in and everyone was just like, yep, yeah, there we go. Expected. Um, especially when it's just the same patterns of play. I think that was, that was what got him really at the end. It was just we'd seen the same game multiple times in must-win games, so it had to happen. Yeah, and not a good game that you'd see multiple no, times. No, not at all. <laughs> Did any of the fans sort of have sympathy with him? Or, or I mean, we know, we'll get onto it, he's not the entire problem. But were there any fans who thought, actually, he's the guy? I don't know how many people thought he was definitely the guy, but I think there was wanting to make it work just because we've had so many managers over the last 10 years that it was a case of at some point we have to sit stick with someone and try them and I think people kind of wanted that to be him just because you know we had some moments last year 
albeit basically just surviving relegation, but it kind of felt like, you know, here's a sort of young manager, someone to to take us through and maybe be that person to to stick with us and be that project with us. But I think when results just go that badly and you're in a place now where I think everyone at that game on Saturday was just looking, saying, if we stick with this guy, we're going down regardless. Barry, your reaction? Yeah, well, nothing Marva says surprises me. And there did seem a grim inevitability about Lampard's sacking. Uh, It doesn't strike me as being a particularly good manager. There are certain things he can't do. He's made some bad signings. Uh, certainly not the first Everton manager to in recent times to make bad signings. And I, I was going through a list of them on, on that transfer market website earlier this morning. Just, just some of the standout bad buys, which for various reasons didn't work out. Dwight McNeil was pretty underwhelming. Neil Maupay was never really going to be the solution. Deli Ali, Disaster, Rondon, Tossun, Decore, James Rodriguez, Josh King, Theo Walcott, Yannick Balassi, Moise Keane, Mohamed Besic, who I'd forgotten actually at one point played Take, forever. Taking me down memory lane. Yeah. <laughs> Gilfie Sigurdsson, Davy Klassen, Nikola Vlasic, who again I have no recollection of ever lining up in an Everton shirt. And, you know, that's, that's just a, a selection of, of the worst hits. God, I'm glad you didn't do the whole list. (laughs) (laughs) But it must be so frustrating, Marva, to have a chairman who is willing to spend a load of money, but just invest it so badly. You know, it's not like a Mike Ashley scenario where he's just tight and for all his faults, uh, Mashiri is prepared to spend money. He just doesn't know how to spend it properly. Yeah, but I think the problem with with that whole list, I don't think any of us could pinpoint who chose which of those signings. I think the only ones that were obvious were under Ancelotti um, with the likes of sort of Hamas Rodriguez and Alan. But other than those, in every single other reign, whether it was the sporting director, whether it was a new manager, in all of those different reigns and different mismatches of different people running the club, it was so hard to pinpoint who was making these decisions. And the same now in in the previous transfer window, there is a tendency for Everton fans to sort of say the ones that we don't like were were chosen by Mashiri and the ones that we do like were chosen by the whatever sporting director or manager we like at the time. But the truth is we don't know. And I think that's a signifier of a bigger problem because if you don't have a wider vision of where all these players are fitting in and, and the kind of football that you want to play, then it's even it's a much worse problem when you have multiple managers because there are just mismatch of players fitting into mismatch of systems. And amongst all those players, some of them have gone on to be okay at other clubs. And I think it's a signifier that we just don't know what kind of football we want to play, what kind of manager we want to have, what kind of sporting director we want to have. And it's just lots of different people making sort of mismatched decisions at the end of the day. I wonder with Everton, are they sort of hamstrung by the fact that they won the league in the 80s? So so like, so they can't be, I think Rory Smith was saying something like this on 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 Five Live, that that they can't they can't do what say Brighton or Brentford do. They can't say that we need to build and understand our position in the hierarchy. They need to sort of try and be come third, but they can't come third before they spend a few years at least coming eight. I'm not sure about about 
all of that. I mean, the 80s is quite a long time ago now. I'm not well, certain that yeah. significant generations even think about the 80s anymore. I'm sorry to break it, Max. I, I realise it's <laughs> difficult. Uh, no, but no, but I no, but I, I I think it is ridiculous to think like that. But I think that might be. You know, there is this. We, we were the best team in the country once. That 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 kind of affects them. I'm not saying they shouldn't. I've tried to win the league. It was a good idea at the time. I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I, if I think that sort of carries or transfer it to, to, to Leicester. Even do you think Leicester sort of act much more recently, having won the league, as a club that they now expects it's supposed to be able to win the league? I don't think they do. I don't think fans feel like that. I, I, I think there's. I think there's something that goes to perhaps being from a city, and I'm, I'm sure Marva could speak to this better than I could, but being from a city like Liverpool, where you have had two big clubs, and Everton, even though they sort of might have accepted that Liverpool have got the Champions League wins, they still felt like a big club that belonged with Liverpool in that conversation that got to be part of that dialogue. So I, I think that's maybe something about the identity of a city and its sort of football heritage more than it is about winning the league in the 80s. Um, I, I, I don't know it, it is the answer. I, I don't feel like that's what's holding the club back in a short-term sense. I feel like what's holding the club back in a short-term sense is, is a lack of of clear leadership. And I and I think that what um, struck me from what Marvel was just saying actually was, we've heard this a bit from Antonio Conte recently, and I'm sure we'll get on to Conte and Tottenham. And, and you know, he's one of the, the, the best in the world at deflecting blame onto absolutely anyone else he can. But his point that he made about how in England, he's the one who has to come and sort of speak to the press about everything when actually not everything is his responsibility. You know, they, we should be hearing from sporting directors. We should be hearing from whoever's job it is to look after the transfers. I think that probably holds in this case as well. Like we, it would be good to hear more sometimes from people who are actually making decisions to explain why decisions were made. Paul, speaking of a, a vision of a club, the two favourites of the bookies are Bielsa and Dyche. With pretty pretty similar similar gaffers there. Well, I, I saw that yesterday. I started the day seeing Bielsa linked, and then I finished the day seeing Allardyce being linked. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be one of the biggest sort of ideological shift. <laughs> but to be fair, um, Bielsa mid-season with someone else's squad. Um, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of press saying he's saying it's too slow a team for him to take on. Uh, I can believe he's probably done his research before he uh, before he makes his decision. Um, yeah, Bielsa mid-season. I, I'm struggling to see that this is this is the best environment for him. Um, but yeah, maybe it is a, a Sean Dyche job this one, or even dare I say a Sam Allardyce job. Is it a you know scratch those points in whatever way you can, and then have a massive rethink in the summer. Um, I don't know, Marv, seeing Marv's expression when I said Sam Allardyce, uh, I'm thinking maybe not. But uh. we, we can't do it again. We just can't. <laughs> Can I ask Marv, is, is there any part of you that thinks relegation might could conceivably be a good thing for Everton? Unfortunately, there is. And I think that shows you the point to where we've got to as fans. My worry is that our financial situation, because I think I don't know if we have the capacity to go down and then sort of do a, a Villa or even a Burnley as we're seeing and sort of regroup and go again because I, I don't know what position the club will be in um, with the new stadium. But I do think going back to kind of the manager choices and, and that question as well, we've had too many short-term solutions where we because we're in a dire state, we just need to quickly fix something and then go again. And I think we do need to look at the longer-term solution if that does mean that we get relegated, but we're looking with a bigger vision in mind in how we want our club restructured and formed, 
it might be the better thing. And I just think while relegation financially will be a big problem for us, at the moment, what we're doing is just delaying the inevitable. I think after last season, everyone in the club was saying, we can't let this happen again. We can't let this happen again. It's happened again. And we're at a worse position than we were last season in terms of our squad, in terms of the mood. Um, and I just think that if we carry on like this and get another short-term solution as manager, even if they keep us up, this is going to be our position for the next two, three, four years, realistically. And do we want that? Not only as a club, but as fans, just to be in that position where you're just losing every week. It gets to the point where you're just like, what's actually the point of being a football fan? I think the last time Everton won a game, Liz Truss was Prime Minister. <laughs> I know there was a World Cup in between, but I mean, come on. It gets to the point where I'm like, I just want to see my team win at some point. That would be nice. I mean, in many ways, you did well to get a victory during Liz Truss's tenure. That's actually quite, that's quite, an, quite an achievement. That's, that's also mean, true. Short window. As a, as a Championship fan, I do think there's this tendency for Premier League fans to think coming down to the Championship, they'll bounce back up. But it's a very, very hard league. Like it's a brutally hard league. And we've seen so many teams go down and then struggle and even go down again. I I just don't know what, I don't think anyone would surely want to roll the dice on that. However, you know, it's not going to be a lot of fun, that league. And I think when you see that fixture list, it, it's quite a jolt to Premier League fans, I think, how tough it is sometimes. I, I just wanted to sort of come back to that, that sort of, because I know it was sort of handed in like a handing sort of like a jokey way or you know Allardyce or Bielsa these are such sort of polar opposites but actually isn't that isn't that sort of the point like if your club's leadership is going I don't know if I want to have this person here or this person here who are completely different it feels like you're just sort of drawing names out of a hat of here's someone famous whose name I can remember who I think might be available that has been our our scouting manager policy for the last sort of eight years is is there a big name that we know about and that's they're the only people we've we've hired. And I think if Bielsa was an actual thought or a planned thought, they would have done that after the two Bournemouth losses in a week before the World Cup and given him six weeks to get this team up to standard with a Bielsa style football. That wasn't planned. Mm, that's so many games to lose to Bournemouth in a week as well. Isn't it? And I think it was an aggregate of seven one wow. in the in the League Cup and in and in the league. And that's a long way to travel for Everton fans. Yeah, I mean, that must be one of the frustrating things is that you look at someone like Brighton who, like, Potter was potentially going to go. It wasn't definitely going to go, but as soon as he went, they had a plan, right? And we've all known for quite a long time that Lampard potentially might not be staying. So you just think, like, like what what is happening above there what is happening where you go you know there how many i don't know how many millions of things there are for a ceo and a chairman to to sort of think about and to have to be but you think this would be their sort of priority right yeah they're, they're kind of top top job right you could see it a mile off um yeah it's it's crazy that they didn't have a short list of options absolutely crazy well i'm winning the guardian saying everton have been put up for sale by mashiri who's looking for offers for more than 500 million um in recent months he sought in outside investment but has finally put them on the market, would consider a minority or majority sale. Um, a number of potential buyers have expressed interest. In a video posted on Everton's website, he insisted he was not planning to sell the club. The club is not for sale. I've been talking to top investors, real quality, he says, unlike those signings that Barry listed. Well, I, just to be clear, Max, I think that video was recorded over a week ago. So the situation oh. may have changed. 
Was he holding a newspaper with the date? How will we ever know? He says, I can do it myself. And the reason I want to do it is to bring top sport investors into Everton for some of the reasons that the fans want. Improvement, more talent. We're close to having a deal done. I mean, I I suspect, Marvin, you're not wholly confident. And actually the discussion, the relegation, because of the new stadium and where you are with that, the, the financial implications are even bigger, aren't they? Yeah, it just leaves more questions than answers. And what a time to announce it. Well, we have no manager and it's just, inter- I mean, the last 24 hours were just absolutely mental. I was sort of in the office and every time I went into a meeting and came out, there was a new breaking headline about Everton. I literally couldn't keep up. And it just, again, it's just symptomatic and emblematic of what is happening at the club, that they can't even get a statement about they're selling the club, which should be headline that should be the story of the day and it was like a footnote in the 24 hours that we had we couldn't even get that announcement right they don't even know what their line is on it um so i i think even fans we saw that and we were like we don't even know what to believe we'll just sort of wait until we get told in a kind of announcement from another source in a few days probably yeah i mean you couldn't even get arnold dan juma so like 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 that i mean it's sort of the whole thing. I mean, it's 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 funny from the outside, but actually, it must. This isn't like this isn't out of the blue, right? It's it must feel like sort of death by a thousand cuts for 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 match going Everton fans. It's it's just one thing after another, but I think it is feeling like it's getting to a place now where it you can't paper over the cracks anymore. I think for too long, sort of Everton fans have been shouting this that the direction of the club isn't right and that the the transfers and the decisions being made are not correct and we've kind of been told oh you'll be fine you won't get relegated stop being dramatic you know but sort of seeing it from the inside we're going no we're heading down a very bad path and I think now that there's that pressure from all sides and everyone's looking at the club being like that's a badly run club and I think we're kind of getting to the pinnacle now where something has to change um I don't know if we've actually reached that that final point. It feels like there's still some more gears to go down to get worse, which isn't great to to see, but you you can't hide this anymore. So something has to give. I don't know what it's going to be, but there's something has to change. And and how do you feel about the rest of the board? I mean, they've obviously got a lot of stick. There was this st- strange story where they said there'd been threats and then the police said they hadn't had any threats reported and obviously that relationship with the fans is pretty broken. But but like, do you want everybody to go? I think it's hard from the outside because, like I said, there's so many decisions that we don't know where they're coming from. But that's kind of part of it, that we the communication isn't there. Um, and that, that issue with, you know, the, their safety and blaming it on the fans just really, really didn't help. Because the one thing that we did have last year, while we there was pressure against the board... At least they did feel a sense of unity between everyone to really get us through that relegation battle. Now it's the complete opposite. I'm not someone to just say sack the whole board because I don't know what that would look like. Realistically, us as fans don't know the ins and outs of it. And that's the kind of point. We shouldn't have to look at the ins and outs of it. We shouldn't have to be able to, even picking a manager, we shouldn't really know who to get. It should be that you guys are the specialists in this and you should know what to do. Football fans, we're fickle. We admit it. You know, we can we can go back and forth very easily. You guys should be the experts. You should be looking. You should be scouting. Um, and I feel the same with with the board. Am I in favour of them? No, definitely not. But also, I'm not just going to say sack the whole board. I don't know what that then looks like for Everton Football Club. But the point is, is they need to be way more communicative and they need to do their job, which right now seems like they are not doing in any capacity. And is there a manager in the shortlist who you like the idea of? 
I'd probably like the idea of Bielsa just because it's a longer term solution. And I think with that mismatch of who the decisions are coming from, he's someone that will come in and say, this is what I need. This is the staff that I want. These are the signings that I want. This is the vision of of play that I want. And that kind of solves a lot of the problems happening at the club. I mean, like like you've all said, Bielsa mid, mid-season with this squad, I, I don't know how that will look. Yeah, feels like Alex Iwobi would have to do a lot of running. He, him, him, and, him and Gray would, <laughs> yeah, yeah, would be passed out by the end of each game. Well, Alex Iwobi already does a lot of running, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Much of it ineffective. I think Bielsa would be a good idea if you accept the provisor that you might go down, but then hopefully come back up again. But he has an incredibly low tolerance threshold for incompetence at boardroom level, and there seems to be a lot of that at Goodison Park. So I have a feeling he probably, and he will do his due diligence, obviously, or has already done it. I'd be surprised if he took it, if offered the job, and even if he did, there's a very good chance he could storm off in a huff within a month. Quick one on Lampard, Nicky. What's next for him? I mean, in the immediate sense, I imagine a TV studio is probably the answer. That's that's the easy answer. That's the, the cop-out answer. I, I don't know. He's. It feels like he's had a lot of chances, doesn't it now, Max? It feels like he's he's been given sort of more than his share of, of opportunities. Does that mean he won't get another one? Probably not, because English football has a way of sort of turning back to familiarity, I think. I, I say English football. I think probably all football does that. But but certainly it happens in, in English leagues that... that People go back to names they know and faces they know, and he's got a lot of the right connections to get another job, doesn't he? Um, all right, that'll do for part one. Marva, thanks so much for coming on. Sorry, well, hopefully we'll, you know, we'll get you back on to talk about, you know, Everton surge up the table, their challenge for the Conf- Europa Conference League or something like that. But uh, thanks for coming on. We can dream. <laughs> thanks. Cheers, Marva. Uh, Marva Creel there, Everton podcaster. That'll do for part one. Part two, uh, we'll start with Newcastle's win at Southampton in the Carabao Cup. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So uh, Southampton nil, Newcastle one. Joseph says, "Is Joe Linton the least Brazilian Brazilian footballer?" We had Paul the trifecta, the Joe Linton trifecta, didn't we? Last night, a disallowed handball, a glaring miss, and the goal that won it. Yeah, uh, my real disappointment was that 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 miss will now be forgotten in a way because that miss deserves to be immortalised for, for, <laughs> for decades to come. It was it was one of those misses. He even looked. 
just almost stunned but delighted by what he had done. Like, <laughs> in that way, when you do something so stupid, the only response you can have is to just take a bit of delight in it. I think it was, as you say, it was the least Brazilian piece of football that I have ever witnessed. And I've played Sunday League at many, many levels. So. <laughs> I mean, I suppose on on you know on the Ronnie Rosenthal range, which is where I put them, there is a difference between striking a ball that. You are not under. It's not under your control, right? It's move. I'm, 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 I'm not giving him a pass here, but like that is different to Rosenthal, who had rounded the keeper and then and then hit the bar. Um, but still, his his transformation, Nicky, has been sort of, and we've talked about it a bit before, but it has been ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I don't watch Newcastle sort of closely enough to to have the the, the full insight, but. I, there is something very sort of, um, I don't know, there's something of, of the sort of, I, I think you've probably expressed it as well as I can, like the, the, the non-Brazilian Brazilianness to him. He's got this sort of, and there's probably, again, completely unfair cliches we fall into of like what we expect a Brazilian footballer to look like, because actually, you know, is is even Richarlison necessarily the sort of typical idea that we have of, of what Brazilian football is. But he's he's got a physicality, he's got a robustness, he's got a sort of, uh, a, a way of, of, I don't know, attacking that ball, the one he does score in, inside the box that feels, and I don't know if part of me is influenced even by like English commentators saying Joel Linton, almost like it sounds like two different names. There's something that feels very English about that sort of moment um, and, and about that way he 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 plays sometimes. And yeah, I, I, I don't know, it, it, the answer is transformation. I think you'd have to ask someone who is more sort of tuned into Newcastle every week, but you know, got the goal when it mattered in the end. Joel Linton had that goal disallowed for that handball. And then, Adam Armstrong had a sort of similar, even more sort of, I don't know what the handball rule is type goal disallowed Paul straight after. And and I think because handball has changed so much, I'm actually watching that going, yeah, I think that's probably right to disallow that. And clearly, clearly that isn't what the handball law is meant to be, right? Surely that goal, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I'm questioning myself now. I don't know where I sit. I don't know if I think that should stand or not stand. Yeah, I'm the same, exactly the same. And I think you know you've got a problem with the law when it gets to that point because I, I had the same response. You know, I was thinking that probably will be disallowed, but it shouldn't be disallowed, but it probably is. Di-. And then you you start second guessing yourself and thinking, was it always like this? Did we always have this weird grey area of and and we didn't. That's that's the thing. And I, I guess that's how the game's gone now. We're taking out common sense because we we don't feel we can trust common sense. It has to be everything has to be perfectly right or wrong. And, and we have to have, um, you know, VAR, we have to have everything. It's right or it's wrong. And and I think now once you take out common sense, it's really hard watching the game when you've watched it with common sense being, you know, a large part of the free. Is it, is it common sense or is it just things that referees wouldn't see? So you just say, well, he wouldn't have seen that. So yeah, that too. Like these offsides that are a fraction of a quarter of a millimetre and you're thinking, well, that that just wasn't offside in the old days because no one would have seen it. But also we wouldn't have gone home and then had 55 camera angles to look at and decide that his nostril was offside. You know, it, we can't, once you've gone that way, you can't really go back again. But I, I'm a real old man. I'm looking back at the happy old days where, you know, goals were sometimes wrong, but we just got on with it. <laughs> and everyone could celebrate a goal as it went in, as if, you know, in that moment we could just enjoy it. And then, look at the lines, look at the, the assistance flag. And if it's not there, just get on with your life. But I, I do miss that, to be honest. And I think the handball rule is in 
a really good example of a rule that just isn't working. I wonder with this one, I, I, I sort of take the, the broader point, but when I was watching, because I didn't think it was a handbook first, I didn't see it. And I also just want to say, I, I really sort of enjoy that Armstrong went for it with the celebration as a former Newcastle player, cut the ears. Also, presumably knowing that the, ha- the ball had at least hit his hand. So like really sort of went in, leaned into that, like I'm going to have this moment against my sort of former club, even knowing that maybe like in the back of his head, maybe this is going to get called back. When I first saw it, I thought, not a handball. Um, and then watching it again, I don't know, because these are the instances which is, which, and you can disagree on, on whether or not we need to have VAR. I know lots of people just think it'd be better just to accept mistakes happen. But actually his hand does strike the ball and does the ball then fall where it does, does it end up in the back of the net if it doesn't? Like, and, and so that is, I think that is the point at which it's reasonable to say if you're going to have this this um, technology, maybe it is relevant. Whether or not you think it's necessary, whether or not you think it's just better just to accept we're not always going to be perfect and these things are marginal, I'm, I think that's a different conversation. Nicholas says, has anyone done the Jan Bednarak double of not realising he'd moved to Villa and now not realising he'd moved back to Southampton? <laughs> also, it's also very hard because, you know, Yannick Vestergaard is quite similar to Jan Bednarak. And, they're, you know, they're all, well, at least one of them's in Southampton at any one time, I think. But I don't know if they both are. I think Vestergaard might be at Leicester now, but I, please don't quote me on that. And Ethan says, has Barry ever sarcastically waved a departing opponent off the pitch like Jacob Murphy did? Perhaps... Back in the Birdtown days, uh, yeah, it was a bit of... Well, you don't know what's going on between them, but I thought, yeah, it was poor from Jacob Murphy. And I thought, Duja Salesasar, is that the right pronunciation? Did very... Performed commendably to not punch his lights out, because I think that's what I'd have been inclined to do. Um, Jacob Murphy should probably wind his neck in a bit because I'd imagine he'll be being waved away from St. James's Park sooner rather than later when he gets transferred to, I don't know, Bristol City or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> Using Bristol City as a, as, a, as a sort of place of exile now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> do, do you think where Jacob Murphy does eventually get sold by Newcastle, Curtis will drive up there and wave him off, <laughs> wave him away from the training ground to get back at him? I feel bad about using Bristol City there. I just, I was struggling to think of a sort of May-ish championship side and then I saw Paul and Bristol City sprung to mind uh, it's kind of a compliment to call us a mid-ish championship side so I'll take that <laughs> so I did think that Carlos Alcaraz who I am not really aware of particularly looked really good for Southampton um, that was my only other uh, note on this game um, I hope that's the player as well yeah they, they play quite well actually um, they seem to be Getting into, I know they lost, but I thought they played quite well and seemed to be getting into a groove under this manager we'd all written off three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, we are guilty. Um, uh, on Monday, Spurs won one. They're at Fulham. Harry Kane's got a lovely goal, levelling uh, Jimmy Greaves' record. Feels Nicky like a really important win for Spurs. They'd had a clear the air meeting. You know, there's all this stuff around Conte, there's the Paratici stuff we'll get to in part three. It felt like this was important. And actually, Fulham away is not easy, even though we all thought it would be at the start of the season. Yeah, I think probably even more important as well, because the the top four this season, it had started to feel like maybe there was a chance that they were going to start separating themselves. Obviously, you know, Manchester United had been on this really good run of form before um, the Arsenal game at the weekend. Newcastle have been in great form. City, nobody expects anyone them to fall out the top four and Arsenal now have this 
um, unex- unexpected situation at the top of the table um, as an Arsenal fan. So, so the, um, the the race again to the top four looks really, really competitive. And yes, Tottenham had lost what three out of the previous four. It was a lovely goal from Harry Kane, and and in general, it seemed like they were in they were the better team in that game. Although only after a sort of slightly fraught opening when Fulham's initial sort of pressure was was really getting onto them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Gary Neville kept pointing out on on Monday Night Football, Paul, that. It still could be a great season. They're three points off the top four. They've got AC Milan in the Champions League, which is not obviously a gimme, but they've got a chance in that one. They're still in the FA Cup. I mean, from a Spurs point of view, I don't think they'll win any of those. I think they could sneak into the top four somehow, but they need someone to fall off a cliff. But it, but it, I mean, it's the hope, right? It could be. It could be an amazing season. Yeah, and I think there's a real sensationalist thing that Conte has to be massive flops on me you know and I I think in reality the the truth of it's just a bit dull he's done fine he's done a reasonably good job um and again this thing of the club not backing him I think the club have backed him reasonably and I think he's done a pretty good job what I think maybe will happen is that Conte is not a person for from my limited knowledge of him he's not a person who will accept mediocrity or at least you know he didn't come to Spurs to sit fifth you know or fourth or you know I, I feel like he's probably not someone whose patience will 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 stand that yeah I I think that's the extraordinary thing about um the, the situation in a, in a big way Paul is like I, I thought it was really surprising that Conte took that job to be honest with you because Conte has basically always said in fact he said when he joined Inter and this became sort of one of those comments that got harked back to a lot because of course he did win at Inter he did get there to, to win the title for the first time since you know Mourinho and 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 restored them to that place in Italian football and right at the beginning when he first took the job he said like I will never take a job unless I think there's at least some chance of of winning like I have to even if it's just one percent I have to believe there's some chance of winning and so when he took the Tottenham job I was like okay like I'm I'm paying attention now right this is this he's not going to take this job without having heard something from Daniel Levy that's got him believing that he can take this this team to to to, um to a different level and perhaps that's hubris perhaps that's just Conte sort of believing in himself a lot I think certainly it's true that the Premier League has this powerful idea because there is just so much more money washing around in the Premier League that you can think as a manager, if you could be managing it elsewhere, the opportunity is so much bigger if we get the signings right. Um, but but the, the phase we're in right now, I think will feel very, very familiar to anyone who's followed Conte's career at all, because it always ends like this. The last season is always a series of increasingly grumpy press conferences in which he sort of makes sure that it's clear to everyone that he hasn't been given everything that he wanted and the things that he thinks he needed to to have the success he wanted. And um and football that can be successful is last season at Inter, they won the league and you still had this grumpiness going into it. Heading into the last chapter of them winning the league, there was a lot of like, well, I'm not really happy about this or that. And the football wasn't particularly exciting. And they just won. And that was the difference. Like at, at Inter, they got the wins. And I think he's exactly as you said this idea that he has to be a disaster if he doesn't sort of win the league in this sort of context when you have got Man City up there who generally are sitting a bar that's ridiculously high for everyone is is ridiculous. Um, but I think that what you were never going to get when you hired Antonio Conte was era-defining football. You were going to get football that got results. And if those results are just a little bit below where you hoped they would be, if you hoped they would be, you know, confident top four finish, 
pushing on in, in cups or something. It doesn't feel like that's where it is right now. Paul says, do you think a decent percentage of us Spurs fans are right to be wanting a change of ownership? I, I struggle with this, Barry, because it feels like, you know, sort of since Pochettino, you know, they bought in Mourinho, they bought in these serial winners, they bought in Conte. Okay, Espirito Santo wasn't like an inspired choice. I mean, three pretty grimly defensive managers, but like they bought two managers in who'd win a lot. They seem to have backed Conte a lot. I seem to remember us in the summer going, Tottenham have got their business done early. Looks like really sensible signings. They could really challenge. But, so I, I, I don't know, and I, you know, some Spurs fans will definitely yell at me for saying this, but I feel like they have actually invested quite a lot. Yeah, that's the impression I get as well. I'm not going to claim to know more than, than any Spurs fans, but you know, they've got this Italian chap in who may be sidelined for 15 months, with, with more of which are none. But that looked a shrewd move. I think it's one of those be careful what you wish for scenarios because uh, I know Daniel Levy has a reputation for being extremely tight uh, when it comes to thrashing out deals. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. He drives hard bargains, but Conte clearly must have been a condition of him taking the job. I want I want these transfers. I want them in early, and and that's what Levy did. I I would I think it's a case of of just some fans being a bit too just behaving like spoiled children, really. We did touch on Dan Juma, Paul, but it is worth it is worth pointing out that Spurs totally stole him. I mean, I think he'd done his publicity <laughs> shots for Everton. Yeah, yeah. You know, he'd done everything. He just hadn't sent off some registration forms. And then Tottenham went, we'll have him. I mean, that is... There's something quite epic about this. You hear about hijacking the deal. That is a genuine hijacking of a deal, that one. To the point where it's almost like he was en route in the car. And yeah, the driver just got a word in his ear. Nope, you're not going there. You're going there. You know, it's... But, but you see this kind of business going on a bit more. And I think there's a little bit of this in Chelsea um, that it seems like the players they're going for are basically the players they can see in the press are going somewhere else and are getting a good response. It's almost... I don't know if that's too simplistic, but it feels like this this stealing of deals is happening. At least it seems to be happening more and more, and I'm I'm all for it. It's um it's brilliant. I I love a player going to sign for one club and being snatched away. It always you know creates a sense of drama, even if that's not actually what's happening. They should have released the Everton should release the Danjuma photos in an Everton kit. Going, <laughs> you know, oh well, you know, it's not it's not all it's not all going our way at the moment. Shouldn't they? They've still got them. Um, anyway, um, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll focus on what's happening with Juventus. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. David says, will Juventus attempt to amortise their 15-point deduction over the next 15 seasons? They were hit with a 15-point uh, penalty for false accounting on Friday after an appeal hearing at the Italian Football Federation. Andrea Agnelli, their former president, was banned for two years from football activities. Uh, similarly, long bans were handed out for other members of Juve's former board, which resigned en masse in November. Uh, it also decided on a 30-month ban for their former sports director, Fabio Paratici, who's now managing director of football at Spurs. It's understood Spurs are urgently seeking clarification. I mean, if I were them, I'd seek it quite slowly uh, to see if his ban extends beyond Italy. Juve have denied wrongdoing, were initially cleared by the sports court in April. An appeal was made after the Federation collected papers from the Turin prosecutors. Juve can appeal the decision to Italy's highest sports court and it could go to CAS as well. Um, 
Nikki, I genuinely don't know where to start. I mean, we hear about amortisation, which is what Chelsea are doing with like the Mudrick deal and having an eight-year contract so or seven-year contract, so the money is split across those. So what, what exactly have Juve done wrong if that's what they were doing? Yeah, so amortisation is totally standard, allowable, legal um, accounting practice, which all football clubs do. When you sign a player, if you sign a player for, for simplicity's sake, let's say you sign a player for £10 million on a five-year contract, then that player is going to go down on your accounts as well, as a spend of £2 million this year because you're going to put that £10 million transfer fee spread across the five years of his contract. So in, in your books, he costs £2 million this year, £2 million next year, and on for the for the full five years. Um now, where this sort of has been exploited by uh, football clubs, and again, this part of it, the fact that it's exploited by football clubs, this is not unique to Juventus, this is not new, this is not um, anything that's that's even illegal, um, is you would have player exchanges where when you exchange two players, you start to set an emotional value on them, right? So if you exchange two players now for £10 million, then the one going out puts a nice £10 million profit on your books this year. Whereas the one coming in, because you signed him to a five-year contract, only goes down as a £2 million spend for this year. So you've created £8 million of profit for this year. Of course, it's notional profit and it's profit that you're going to have to pay back over the next five years. But that's essentially the idea. Now, the bit where this gets murky is, have some clubs, and Juventus aren't the only ones accused of it, been artificially inflating the value of these players um, to create great big false um, profits on their accounts. So instead of saying this player's worth £10 million since this exchange max, why don't we both say they're worth £100 million to, to be exaggerated and ridiculous about it? Um, this is not a real example. And now suddenly you've got a profit of £90 million on your books. That's that's the idea. Okay, so of course the numbers weren't as big as that. I'm not suggesting it was as ridiculous. I'm just giving you an example to illustrate what happens. There was a case brought before um, prosecutors in, before, sorry, before the um, Italian Football Federation Sporting Court um, by the prosecutors last year, and there were eleven clubs involved. Um, Juventus were just well, one of them, obviously, but there were ten other clubs, and there was a, a a case. And in the end, the Football Federation said, "Look, you can't decide whether a club has artificially inflated the value of a player because." Football clubs will spend whatever they want to spend on a football player, right? There's no objective value in the transfer market. People overpay all the time. So it's an untriable case. Throw it out. Then the public prosecutor in Turin, separate to this, has been conducting an investigation into Juventus' accounts that has different threads to it, including this sort of yet to be worked out part, by the way, which is potentially going to create much bigger problems for Juventus going forward about some wages that were um, deferred by Juventus players. So during the COVID pandemic, Juventus announced that their players were going to give up four months worth of wages and this has been agreed with the players. Um, This was a public statement, which is relevant because Juventus are a publicly listed company. They're on the stock market. Um, And the accusation is that actually they didn't give up four months worth of wages. They gave up maybe a month's worth of wages and the rest was paid back to them via bonuses. And um, this is an ongoing investigation. Well, no, the investigation is not concluded, but it's, not, it's pending the, the the legal case. The court case, criminal case is going to start in, in March. So that's ongoing. But as part of that inquiry by the Turin public prosecutor, they did wiretaps, they intercepted communications, they found out all sorts of information. And among these wiretaps are lots of what seem like pretty incriminating conversations between events directors about the plus valenza, the capital gains, this sort of practice of, of inflating transfer values. And 
there's comments from people like Agnelli saying things like, you know, we've pushed this instrument too far. And so that's what we've that's what we've heard. Could he say he was talking about, I was actually just talking about my tuba or just something, <laughs> you know, what can he come up with? But, but Max, this is this is kind of what's what's sort of fascinating and, and in, in my opinion, slightly sort of absurd about the, the just the, the, the time frame of how things are happening. We found out on Friday that there's going to be this 15 points penalty. And at the same time, we find out that it's a 15 point penalty. We get told... And the full verdict will be released in 10 days. So I'm talking to you now, nearly a week later, and we still don't know why they were given a 15-point penalty. We can speculate. We can say, well, this is what was presented by the prosecutor. These are things that seem you know, eyebrow-raising. But the actual verdict is not out yet and won't be out possibly till next week. And if there's wrongdoing found, it might come back to the sporting court and lead to another points penalty. Of course, really important stress here, Juventus deny all wrongdoing, say that what they were doing was practice that everyone was doing and that it's allowable that there's no rule against this and they're going to appeal. But they can't appeal right now because there isn't a verdict yet. The verdict comes out at some point in the next few days. So this isn't finished. Just reading about this, Juve's defence seems to be, and their sole defence over the, the inflation transfer business or transfer fee business, seems to be that it's really unfair that because they're Juventus, they've been subjected to far more rigorous scrutiny than other clubs who are all doing the same thing. And that that doesn't seem like a great defence. Well, well, actually, that's that was one of my questions, which is, you know, if, if, if two clubs are overvaluing their players, well, then two clubs are doing it. So, so aren't there lots of other clubs that you've ever doing business with who are should be in the same trouble. This is why a lot of us are really fascinated to see the verdict, Max, because um, that makes total sense, doesn't it, right? If you're doing part exchanges, if you're doing swaps with people and, and values being inflated, then why isn't everyone? Juventus fans, as, as as sort of Barry's suggesting there as well, absolutely appointing to other clubs and going, hang on, what about that transfer? That was pretty suspicious. And I mean, there's one that's that's drawn a lot of attention and, and that's the Victor Osman deal. And Victor Osman, of course, is destroying Serie A this season. He's a sensational player I think he's one of the best players on the planet and even though the ranking isn't out yet I know he is criminally undervalued in the in the Guardian's top 100 that's that's ongoing but he's you know when he when they signed him Napoli from Lille for 70 million euros that was a deal that had sent four players to Lille for a notional value of 20 million euros some of whom never even got to Lille they were just sent straight out on loan and I think a lot of people are looking at going well hang on we're not the only ones who've been doing some sort of creative valuation. Were those players really worth that amount of money? And the answer to that is there might yet be repercussions for other clubs. Because, for instance, uh, Giuseppe Kine, who's the prosecutor for the Italian Football Federation, has requested from the public prosecutor in Naples some more information regarding a, a, a case that they've been investigating into Aurelio De Laurentiis, the um, the owner of, of Napoli. So the re- there is some truth in the fact that the reason that Juventus are being punished right now is because there was separate to the sporting courts. This is not initiated by the Italian Football Federation. It's not initiated by anyone within the Italian sort of football structure. The public prosecutor in Turin did these investigations and found some things. And then the sporting courts went, hang on, that's relevant to us. Give us that information. We're going to look at it. And so there is some reliance here on criminal prosecutors representing the public interest in parts of the country and what they've dug up. Whether or not anything will happen with Napoli, way too early to say I'm just raising that because Kine has asked for that information. That's a public request he's made. So who knows? 
um, it does feel like some of this is is tip of the iceberg stuff, and 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 certainly as regards to Juventus, this salary thing is is really big. Well, that was my other question: is 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 that wages thing? What 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 are the implications for the players involved? I mean, are there could they face? Could they? Fe- I've seen people saying they could face sort of like a one month ban from football or something, and that could involve players who are no longer at Juventus, right? Right, exactly. You know, where's Dejan Kulisevsky right now? That's that's a, a a great question. I mean, Ronaldo as well, I guess. But interestingly, this is what's been reported by La Repubblica this morning. So this is sort of new reporting. There is a possibility um, under sort of the existing statutes of football that players could be subjected to a one-month ban. But the, the, the suggestion in La Repubblica's reporting is that Kulisevsky and Ronaldo be two case players who are much less at risk because they didn't sign a side letter. And there's sort of a side letter that some players have signed, which sort of acknowledges, okay, you know, we're going to give up these wages, but we're going to get it paid back to us. And 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 that sort of letter may end up being really sort of um, pivotal in whether or not some players get banned and some don't. And so for Tottenham fans who are worried, yeah, it's, it seems like Bentancur and, and Kulisevsky didn't sign this letter. So they might be less exposed than, than some other players are. But yes, one month bans are being talked about for, for players. Um, and and I'm sure also sort of English listeners, international listeners might be interested in what's happening with Paratici as, as his involvement with Tottenham. It seems an open question for now, but within FIFA's statutes, there's certainly provision for if a national body bans someone, the people... Um, who initiate that ban to request that FIFA extend the ban internationally if he's been brought to have breached the specific wording to it, but a, a level of seriousness of the offence. And it, it appears certainly possible that that could happen in this case, but it hasn't happened yet. So like a lot of things in this case, we're waiting and seeing. On a different subject, Fergus says, can we get a quick word on Darvel knocking out Aberdeen in the Scottish Cup? A truly seismic result. The English equivalent would be one of the big six going out to Dulwich Hamlet. Barry. Yeah, it was being hailed as the, possibly the biggest upset in 149 years of Scottish Cup football history. So in Scotland, you've got the SPL, then the Scottish Championship, Scottish League One, Scottish League Two, then below them, sort of side by side, are the Highland Leagues and the Lowland Leagues. And below them, you have this series of regional leagues including the West of Scotland Football League Premier Division. And it, it is that division that Darville bestride like the Colossus. And, and they're in it with teams with such evocative names as Auchinleck Talbot, Largs Thistle FC, Kirkin Tullock Rob Roy FC, and Cambus Lang Rangers FC. So um, Darville uh, beat Aberdeen. Aberdeen have been in a very poor run of form recently. I think they'd only won one of their past eight going into this game. Lost six of the other seven, and they'd just been thrashed by Hearts 5-0 at the weekend, a match after which their uh, manager, Jim Goodwin, who's an Irishman, a fellow from Waterford, said he was embarrassed. Well, hold my own beer, Jim. (laughs) 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 Because... His embarrassment in the wake of the Hearts match was nothing in comparison to the embarrassment he felt after seeing his team dumped out by these part-timers. Darville beat them 1-0. Jordan Kirkpatrick shot on the turn, uh, went in. Jordan almost missed the post-match celebrations in Glasgow because he's a plumber by trade and was called out to an emergency job, but he eventually made it to the pub 
with his teammates. Uh, it was just, just a remarkable result. Uh, we got the commentary when uh, Jordan's goal went in. Darvel in Wonderland, you know, total cup magic uh, commentary. And Mick Kennedy, their manager, he, he's been doing the rounds, interview rounds the past day, but he, his pre-match team talk went viral and it was, you know, very much uh, any given Sunday, inch by inch sort of thing. Um, he said the average man lives to be 77 years old. Uh, although I think it might be considerably lower in some parts of Scotland. But anyway, we won't go there. And he said, uh, you know, I want you to give me everything for that. That He said, that's 40 million minutes. And I want you to give me everything you've got for the 90 minutes of those 40 million. And, and they did. You must believe, he said. And he seemed extremely confident going into the game. And his confidence has proved uh, entirely justified. So hats off to Darville. Yeah, well done. It did look like Aberdeen had a goal dislodged for offside that looked as onside it could, as it could possibly be. But I think that's fair, but the flag went up so early that Darville's defenders stopped defending. Yeah, possibly. And possibly. I suspect it might not have been scored if, if you know, the flag hadn't gone up as quickly as it did. The goal scorer got into the dressing room and then had like a call saying, you know, my... my my U-Ben's blocked. <laughs> <laughs> can he come down the road? Surely he could say, no, not tonight. Surely someone could have done him a favour. I mean, I presume, Paul, that, you know, Darvel are a bit too mainstream for you and your footballing tastes. Yeah, I know. Barry suggested, you know, he said that this is the kind of team I might end up coaching, but my last three job offers have come from North Korea, Papua New Guinea and Moldova. So <laughs> wow. uh, it's I would kill for Darvel. <laughs> <laughs> Moldova's quite a big job, isn't it? Not not the not the Moldova job, just a job in Moldova. No, a job in Moldova. Oh, um, right, okay. Yeah, no, I'm not quite that level yet. No. Yeah. <laughs> Are you even a little bit tempted by a gig in North Korea? I must admit to my shame, I was quite tempted. Um and this is this is a little while back now. So I was quite tempted by it. Uh, but it had come about through a TV production company who were basically brokering the deal and had found me a club who were willing to take the chance. And I've got to admit, I didn't actually turn it down. What happened was oh, right. the production company even said to me, um, if it gets dicey out there, we reckon we can get you home. That was what they <laughs> said in an email. And like, even after that message, I said, all right, I'll, you know, I'll at least have some meetings. And actually it, it fell through um, because the TV channel that they were supposed to be doing it with didn't want anything to do with it because then suddenly I think North Korea sent some missile up or something and ruined my job opportunities. But um, I I never actually turned it down. <laughs> it's a measure of my desperation for a job at that point, I think. <laughs> you, you don't get that on Championship Manager, do you? Going, you know, talks have stopped, reason, missile, don't they? I mean, is, 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 there, any, is there anything you'd like to... Bring up, bring to us, Paul, that we probably haven't covered since you were. Yeah, there. well, the the two two really quick ones. So, uh, in San Marino, the in at the moment, one of the most incredible stories is that uh, at the moment, Cosmos are top in San Marino, uh, having finished bottom last season and rock bottom. So this is very rare in a, a European league because it's obviously impossible in most leagues. You'd be relegated. They only scored nine goals the whole of last season and were rock rock bottom. This season, they are top. And basically it owes to the fact that they've turned over the entire squad um, and got a new manager in. But yeah, it's it's kind of an unusual story that to go from literally bottom to top. Um, and the other story that, that obviously I'm very invested in is the Marshall Islands have 
uh, an English technical director, Lloyd Hours, who's just joined. Um, so Marshall Islands were... Could you remind remind everybody where the Marshall Islands are? Uh, in Micronesia, so out towards where I used to be in, in Pompeii, in, in Micronesia. Are they named after Ian Marshall? Are they the <laughs> Ian Marshall Islands? Ian Marshall's Islands. No, but they, yeah. they were previously the only nation, only sovereign nation on earth without um, a football association. And then they set one up about, I think it was a year and a half ago. Uh, and Lloyd's volunteered to be their technical director. So I'm very excited about that. All right. Good luck to them. What, and what do they play in? They are, they're one of these nations. So there's only a handful of them. It's, it's Palau, Federated States of Micronesia, um, Nauru, and the Marshall Islands, who are not, uh, and Nui actually, who are not in Oceania Football Confederation and have made various attempts over the years to get into Oceania Football Confederation, but have, have failed. So they are one of the, the very few that are basically in football exile uh, and not for any political reason, but just because um, it's very hard to, to get the attentions of people in Oceania football. I'll make some calls. Um, <laughs> See what you can do, Matt. You're, you're, although you're in Australia, so you're in Asia these days. Oh, I'm in Asia. Oh, that's a, oh I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, uh, BJD says, uh, during his post-World Cup break, did Barney recharge in the same cryotherapy chamber that Erling Haaland used during the World <laughs> Cup? If so, do you plan to book Barry for a stint in one? Um, yeah, the all-new Barney was, it was a, a joy to hear. Let's see how long it lasts. Mr. Caruso says, after 10 years, do you and Barry feel closer? Because he would have apple schnapps shots in his dream bar and uh, would you two have a celebratory shot at the next live show this is obviously your wonderful performance on at the moon underwater barry where you've suddenly become you know loved uh, <laughs> it's on, remarkable loved feeling. on twitter which is truly extraordinary yeah, <laughs> what a strange week for you just to be clear it weren't it wasn't apple schnapps it was apple sours of a pathological hatred of schnapps due to a uh, mishap during my student days, which I don't want to talk about. And Sam finally says, following the discussion on Monday's pod about applauding the fans at the end of the game, of which Barry accuses me of stealing his material that he said on the radio on Sunday, will the panel be following the example of Everton's players and showing how much they care by personally applauding, thanking every listener in person? You know, Barry Wilson and producer Joel could divide London. Um, uh, Lucy Ward and John Bruin have lots of ground to cover across the whole of the North, being the only representing the Southern Hemisphere. Max has a busy day ahead, yes. We'll go off and applaud the pod fans in our local environs as soon as the full-time whistle is blown on this. Um, and that's now. And uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will applaud you in a second, unless you boo us. <laughs> we'll go straight back to the dressing room. I, I will be arguing with listeners in the car park afterwards. <laughs> <Will you? laughs> Um, anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Max. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 